Fualsha, 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 Akarja Gail, and welcome to episode 104 of the Rebel Matters podcast, the very first episode of 2022. As usual, I am your host, Anla O'Carolan, and this week's guest on the show is Hana Amwiro. Hana is a screenwriter, a radio presenter, and at the time of recording, the president of the radical community radio station Radio Skid Row, based in Sydney, Australia. Hana and I first got connected because we were both taking part in a Networks of Solidarity event that was run over Zoom a few months ago and sort of found a common ground because of our long-standing familial connections to Radical Community Radio. Our chat started off with a bit of a discussion around the importance of acknowledging the original people of the land of Australia and also the original names that the land was called by before it was colonised by the Brits. And we talked about how Hana got involved in Radio Skid Row and the importance, the struggles and the beauty of community organisations and uh, community radio as well. It was a really interesting chat and I think you're going to enjoy it. And I'm very grateful to Hana for being the guest of the very first Rebel Matters podcast episode of 2022 after a bit of a break. Just before we get stuck into the chat with Hana, I want to say a massive thank you to all of the supporters of the Rebel Matters podcast over on Patreon. I'm extremely grateful for all of the support that the show has been getting over on Patreon and the support that we've been getting through uh, messages on social media and stuff, especially over the last few months where we've taken a bit of an extended break from making the show just so that I could do my very best to get Ackley, the personal training place that I run in Cork City, back off the ground after all of the extended lockdowns. So, Gurukhed Milamoyagov, Akarja, for all of the support. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and see the various tiers of support on over there. So, Shane Akarja Gail, let's get stuck into episode 104 of the podcast with Hana and Wiro. I live on what I call stolen land where sovereignty was never ceded. So it's colonised by the British and is takes a form of what most people know as Australia. But for me and the way I was raised, so I was born on what is known as Gadigal land, um, which is one of those first points of colonisation. Um, the place known as Sydney is like that first point of colonisation when they came in 1788. You know, it's about 200, over 200 years of colonisation and genocide. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, the way I was raised was that the first acknowledgement goes to the people whose land it is and 
that the only reason that we're here as settlers um, and by where I mean like my family and how they migrated here over time um, is because of genocide, right? And then you add to that like me as a black Arab woman, like First Nations people here look like, you know, their skin tone is the same as my ancestors from Namibia. And so for it to be black land, for me, first and foremost, is that that is what matters, that central struggle um, to have sovereignty acknowledged, to have the um, illegality of colonisation acknowledged is why we don't, why I don't claim that. So is Katigo um, land the, the original name of what people would now call Sydney? Um, parts of. So there's several different parts of what you would call Sydney that have all different kinds of um, people and names that, you know, have existed for over 40,000 years. Like it's a crazy piece of land. Like this is a really sentient and ancient place and colonisation is such a small part of that um, but such a violent part of that. So, yeah, there's there's lots of different areas. So I was born, raised and live what is known as like the land of the Gadigal people, um, but the wider kind of context of those um, clans is the Eora Nation and that spreads across different areas of Sydney where you have Bidjigal people, Darug people, um, all different kinds. And, and what's really interesting where I live, which is Gadigal, there's a river known as the Cook's River, um, Captain Cook, and it over time has been moved by colonisation. So where it would have previously been a divide between two different people's lands, that's been reworked. And so parts that would be on one side of the river and now the other side of the river. So it also ends up being sort of contested space historically and so you end up acknowledging maybe more people than just the people what the local council tells you to acknowledge how come it was that you were raised in a way that acknowledged that that gave that acknowledgement to the original names um my my mom's a big part of that um so she is from like her family originates for what's now known as lebanon it wasn't necessarily called that when they left. Um, my grandfather's, my great, great, great grandfather came here over a hundred years ago. Um, and then my grandmother's family moved here in the early, mid 1920s. Um, so, in terms of like Arab migration, they're considered early waves, as in they didn't come from Lebanon after the war or during the war. Um, so my mum was born here and raised here. They grew up, well, my grandparents grew up in areas that were historically Indigenous or Black. Um, and then as she, like, kind of left her family and became involved in radio and journalism, she started to actually build relationships, um, I guess political relationships with First Nations people. And that was really about um, 
respecting, again, whose land you're on, but also knowing who you are and where you came from and how you ended up here. And so it was just very staunchly politically ingrained in her um, and it was a very personal practice. Like it, it wasn't something that I'm supposed to teach other people. It was just how it is. And then my father came here in the 70s, 80s. I like to be vague about it because um, he left South Africa under apartheid and, you know, got documents illegally to get out and leave and come here. Um, at the time, Australia was very, um, like, anti-apartheid, like even to the highest levels of government. So they were taking political refugees um, because it was about them finding power within the Commonwealth, I guess. It was like Australia would not be recognised as um, anything if they didn't kind of do that. It was, it was, had political and economic reasons. Um, but my dad came here and then there was an anti-apartheid movement. And so both my parents um, have always really instilled in me that like genocide happened here, like it's happened in a lot of places in the world in this global project of colonization and white supremacy. Um, people here on this land have stood with us in protest and in march to free your people back there and now you have this nation known as Namibia which is formed like in 94 so I'm born like I go from being South African to Namibian the end of apartheid and so it was just yeah ingrained that the reason you're here the reason you know, people are free somewhere else. It's all connected and you better care about it. Whenever I was a kid and Radio Falcher, which is the community radio station that um, my dad was involved in setting up, I guess it was like the early 90s or could have been even before that when they had the first kind of incarnation of it. And it was a pirate radio station and like it was, you know, at times, he was the only person who would be manning the the station, and um, he would be driving off the school, dropping off the school, and then trying to get down to the station to try and read the nine o'clock news before, like, before nine o'clock was over. Sometimes maybe a couple of minutes late, but I, I guess at the time, whenever I was a kid, I didn't maybe fully realize the significance of that kind of work, and you're know, like. When you're a kid, you're thinking like, just kind of taking things for granted. Yeah, yeah, my dad's just going down to read the 9 o'clock news on the radio station. But looking back at it, I mean, it's not this sort of, it's definitely not the path of race resistance. And looking at the older I got, I start to ask myself, like, why was he putting himself through that trouble to go down and do that? And why were other people who were involved in the project putting themselves through the trouble to to do that and the older I get like the more that I see the importance of it and when I see where the radio station is now brand new like building that just opened a couple of years ago with like state-of-the-art studio different different studio rooms and uh, young people from the area going into the station and learning radio skills whether it's like on the production side or on the, the hosting side or the presenting side 
and giving people a sort of channel that they can go through to express themselves or to um, whether to express themselves or develop music or give them a, a kind of occupation and an opportunity to use their own language, which was another big part of the struggle that we went through. And now it makes way more sense that the people who were doing that work 20 years ago just had this vision of where, of what the possibility was. Was that kind of, was that in a way comparable to your experience when you were a kid? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're getting into this because when we did the networks of solidarity, I think the thing that struck me the most was like, I'd never in a million years thought some white boy in Ireland would have lived my childhood. Because it's like, how do you explain to people like what it's like to live with a parent who works in community radio? Like I, if I'm going to be honest, completely resented it. I didn't get it. It was, everyone was crazy to me. And then I grew up and realised I was crazy too. But it was, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. I was like, why are you putting so much in to save this thing? Why do I have to have my birthday party at the radio station because you're working? Um, you know, I'm an only child, like my mother's only biological child. And so Radio Skid Row was like the sibling I could never compare to. That was the first child, I think. That was her first child. She'd hate me saying this out loud, but... That's how I felt as a kid. But she also dragged me in there doing her show and would get me on air to talk about things in my life. Like one, I got suspended from school um, in primary school because the teacher was like racist and I lost my shit and I got suspended. And my mom brought me on to like interview me and to talk about like what that experience was like and why it sucked and I look back on that now and I'm like that was like empowering me to give a voice it was saying that my voice mattered in a world or an education system that told me I didn't matter um and so I could panel by the time I was five and then in my teenage years I used to do it with my friends we'd go after school and I'd collect we'd get requests at lunch and play them after school but in some ways I think I was still embarrassed by it. Like it was just this little shed. I loved doing radio, but I don't think I fully appreciated the community um, still as a teenager. And then in my like late teens, early 20s, I sold out and went to a community radio station with no politics and no people of colour and was like a sidekick um, until I couldn't be a sidekick anymore. And then I found my way back to Skid Row and have never left. Oh, I lie. I worked in commercial radio too for a bit um, and then found my way back to Skid Row and never left. And now it's exactly what you say. I'm like, of course you would put so much into sustaining this like rare gem of a space even if it isn't just this hut in the back of a community centre, um, because it's about pathways for people. I think radio is one of the few 
empowering tools that you can give anyone. Like the amount of people that are like, I can't do this, and you just push them in a studio behind the mic and then they're doing it is that I don't know anything in my life that can make someone believe in themselves like that that quickly. There was definitely times whenever I was a kid where I resented having to tag along the like meetings or just fart around for a couple of hours while other people were having meetings and just kind of sitting in an office and actually myself and one of my brothers Carbert really at one point I guess around the mid 90s really got into going to joke shops whenever we were just left to our own devices so we were just going into joke shops buying these like fake shits and like fart spray and like coming back and then putting them all around the place and stuff but I remember one time uh, my after my mom and dad split up when I was about 11 we would stay with my dad at the weekend and I would get up on a I guess like Sunday morning and cycle down to where the radio studio was at the time and go and just play some CDs and then cycle back and sometimes my dad still be in bed and he just had the radio on at the side of the bed and I'd be like here so what did you think about that he was like yeah yeah no it was pretty good like but you know you're doing this thing called uh trachehenicus which is like one trackism where you just like play the first track but you didn't get back on time to like change the CD. So you just let it run onto the second track. And <laughs> like, so it's just kind of interesting. You're like, looking back now, like how you're kind of getting, just picking up these things along the way, like at a re- really young age. <laughs> it, it It's crazy how, I don't know. I think if I was softer, it would probably hurt my feelings more, but I don't think I can finish a radio show without my mom giving me feedback. I just don't think it's, I don't know. I used when even when I was doing it on my like white sellout station, she would be like, good show, but you're doing this or, and she's a great teacher, but, and I'm grateful for it now, but yeah, you do just pick it up and it was just given to you, but it's like a gift, but you were like, what is this? Why do you care so much about this thing? And now it's like, I love radio. Totally. And like my, my dad is still still does a radio show every Friday on Radio Falsha at three o'clock at Dublin time for anyone who's listening in Australia. And it's only Elvis. He just only plays Elvis every single Friday. And um, my mum, who, um, as I mentioned at the time, we were doing the Network of Solidarity. We uh, talked that time, died by suicide last year. She had a show regularly. She worked in the radio station as her job and also had a show that she did regularly called her Chakran Lahifa, which was sort of in Irish, it means a stray with Aoife. And she just played uh, music from all over the world. And just anytime I listened to her, she just had this, such a steady way of presenting the show where I always find myself when I'm talking on the podcast, especially when I'm talking about something that I kind of get a little bit excited about. I can feel myself starting to talk faster and faster until I'm like talking a million miles an hour. And I just always remember thinking to myself how nice a presenting style she had, where it was always kind of at the same speed where she was nearly letting the, letting the music do the fast talking for her, you know, in a way, just kind of laying it out for the people who are listening. I think that's why I, I, like, I, I totally agree. Like, one, I have to say, when you told that story about your mom, like my mom like totally 
was like crying across the world on Zoom. Like she just, it was such a strange connection, an amazing connection to, like I said, hear that some other people live a life like us. Um, But the music is so important. Like that's what the podcast, and I think it's why I would never do a podcast again, is because the music is so important to setting the vibe and communicating like where you're at and your mood and it's so powerful like you can say things without words um that that's why radio is special to me because it's the music and the talk and the person in the studio that's leading you down this path and I always think about um the songs my mum played on a Sunday morning. So I now do the show that she took me to, like the same time slot. And it's not as good. I know it's not as good. Musically, conversationally, I just know it's not. And I have really strong memories of my mum like, you know when you used to have answering machines where you record you know, you've called da-da-da-da-da and we're not home right now. And I always remember my mum recording that, um, like, with her radio voice and how nice it sounds when she's saying, you know, we're not there but leave a message and that's what she used to sound like on air as well. And Yeah, the music and the voice. A mum in the studio is a powerful thing mm, I've come to sure. learn. It's funny that you mentioned that because a, a f- I think it might have been the episode just before I took the bit of a break from the podcast. I was in Belfast in my mum's house for a few days and she was, I think in part this was because she spent such a long time working as a librarian and had access to the like world music collection, but she has got such a class collection of CDs from all over the world. So I like went down to the town and bought an external CD drive, just plugged it into my laptop and made an episode of the podcast where I was just picking CDs off the shelf and like playing them for a little while. And uh, it was really nice. Actually, she actually has got loads of um, Aboriginal music from Australia. I played a couple of tracks, uh, really nice ones. And then some other like bizarre tracks from like Kazakhstan, folk music and stuff like that there, which was really nice. But um it's funny you say that about the radio voice as well, because I just remember thinking back to my, the early episodes of the podcast that I did and listening back to them now, I'm like, oh, I've got such an annoying podcast voice that <laughs> I just can't listen back to them. I don't really, don't really like listening back to myself anyway, but um, I do remember thinking in the early days of the podcast, I'm going to have to sort that out because I really was kind of going for a more conversational style is if like the way when you're sitting beside someone like drinking a cup of coffee and you're just talking kind of like the way that we're talking now (laughs) I think I'll be able to listen back to this one (laughs) I no one likes the sound of their own voice I still don't I just dissociate when I do it and I try not to um edit myself too hard but everyone no one likes the sound of their own voice unless you're a narcissist I guess but um most Radio people, I don't think do, but I definitely have a radio voice. I think is, there's a difference. Like, is this it? Your radio voice? 
Probably. It's close to my regular voice, but I probably am like you, that if I'm really conversationally, I'm 100 miles an hour and I swear way more, way more. That was Whereas the thing. my radio voice tries to take it down because I know someone has to actually follow what I'm saying. That was, I was, I remember thinking that that's what, what I was trying to do at the start is get my podcast voice a little bit closer to my regular talking voice. So they were a little bit more comparable. What's the, so like, what's the history of Radio Skid Row? Um, so after that coup that I spoke about early on. That was like in, in the set 1980 or 80s. something? Was it? Yeah, yeah, early 80s. Um, it's, it's main focus and still remains today that Radio Skid Row exists for the most marginalised people in the community. Um, so obviously Indigenous people, um, people of colour or migrant populations who want to broadcast in their own language, um, languages you know, other than English, but also speak directly to communities. Um, as I said, Australia's a racist country. That racism extends to everyone, you know. Um, so a lot of people have a lot of things to talk about. And there's also political struggle all over the world at that time. Like, it's also about that. Um, so yeah, First Nations, migrant people, queer people, women, poor people, um, people in social housing, homeless people, young people, like basically if a door is closed to you somewhere else, it's open to you at Skid Row. And, and that's what, as I've, you know, I've become a broadcaster there I've also been on staff. I'm now the president of the board. And it's so important to remember not just Radio Skid Row is for marginalised people but the most marginalised. So that recognising that within marginalised groups there are also hierarchies um, that someone's going to be at the bottom of and that's the person that comes on Skid Row, the person most connected to struggle community that's who comes on skid row do you guys have a physical studio in downtown or something like that so it exists um now it exists again gadigal land in this it's in a community center that used to be an army barracks so there's all these huts and some of them have been rebuilt over the years, but we pretty much exist in one that's pretty much the same as what it was. Um, and there's all these other organisations there, but we're at the very, very back of the community centre and we have a hut with two studios and then two other little kind of working spaces, offices, training room. We do a lot with hardly nothing. Um, but, yeah, that's where we exist physically. We've Obviously, the last two years have been really, really difficult with lockdown. Um, We've had to, like, a lot of people have learnt to essentially do what you do, like podcasts to produce their radio shows, which just takes so much longer than just going in for two hours and doing a show. Um, But also, like, the importance of the place, like what happens off air between us as we change shows and the conversations we have off air or 
um, the conversations we have out in the yard about what is culture in this city right now, what are we doing, where's everyone at politically, what are we feeling like we want to be talking about as a station, that stuff's really important and lockdown really prevents that. We're doing like Zoom hangs and stuff um, weekly to try and stay connected, but you need a door that's open for someone to walk into, right? Mm. And that's what used to happen back in the day. People would just walk in off the street or there'd be kids playing outside and someone would yell, you want to come and learn how to do radio? Um, like lots of people have stories like us where they were just like around and now they have made their whole lives from it. But the place is really important. Physical space is really important. And, yeah, I never thought I would be a pandemic president, but it's changed everything. But, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot while writing my reports, that how much we've suffered in not being able to be able to congregate. Like That's one of my favourite things about doing the podcast, aside from doing the actual chats that make up the episodes, but the, the conversations that happen after the episodes, like a lot of them happen online, but a lot of them happen in person as well, where someone will come up and like, just start talking about uh, someone who was on the podcast or a topic that was being discussed. Actually, sometimes people come up and start talking to me about really personal things that I didn't know anybody else knew about. And I'll be like, how do you even know about that? And they'll be like, you were talking about it on the podcast and I just kind of like in the process of making the kind of episodes, just sometimes you just get lost in the, in the conversations and the new Radio Falsha studio that was built a few years ago has actually got a really nice cafe in it. And in any time that, that I've been in there, it's always been kind of like a hub for people just sitting down and having the chats, like exactly kind of the way that you were saying it. So have you guys got like a mixture of training courses and then like a process for training up new presenters and stuff like that? Yeah, so anyone can submit a program proposal, like anyone. You don't have to have experience. You just kind of have to have an idea. Um, so that's like an always an open process and there's a program committee that goes through that. But then um, we run projects that offer like stuff that is outside of on-air programming. So if you wanted to do a podcast or maybe we'll work with a community org to make some content um, around something they're doing and, and things like that. And we offer training courses all the time for our existing presenters as well. So there's like always lots of training going on, always lots of creating going on. And then we have our on-air as well, which is like some people have been doing their programs for like 20 years couldn't get them off if I tried like and I don't think I would want to how do you merge the the political ethos and the political conversations with the more like it's like the, the music side of things it's different for everyone like I should honestly like it's it's different for everyone I think some programs they don't necessarily have a out and out political ethos some people might even call them religious programs, but they're in someone's mother tongue. They're in their language, right? And that's the role that Skid Row plays, um, is an opportunity for people to sit and listen to their language being spoken. Um, but melding the political with the music, well, it's always had, um, along with that most marginalised 
that extends to music. So I, I think of like we have a gospel show that's been running on Sunday morning before my mum's show, like, and now my show. Like I've known that presenter since I was a little kid. Shout out to Terry. He does a gospel show, but it's not what you would think gospel music as, right? He'll play blues and jazz and all these other kind of things that aren't necessarily talking about how great Jesus is, but that life is hard and maybe Jesus helped me a little bit. But this is why my life is hard. So I guess what I'm saying is people come in with a a different way of seeing the world and the music reflects that. You know, so it's always been music from all over the world, but, you know, I guess we have a reputation as being a hip-hop and reggae station, like, all through the 90s. Um, And that's something that I just totally took for granted, like, because the club and music party scene in Sydney now is terrible, and I wish I could just go back to all those parties that my parents went to. Or my mum, not my dad doesn't like parties. But, um, yeah, I guess that's what it is. It's not how do you fuse the music and the political. It's that you've got people in there that see the world differently and love music. And I suppose given marginalised people the platform to make radio shows and to speak in their own language and to put their own music out in a way is like a political act in of itself, even if they're not talking overtly about political things on the show. Yeah. Pretty much, like, and and we'll, and and that's the the other beauty of it is if if you've got a struggle and you want to walk in and come on someone's show, someone will let you. Like, you know what I mean? If you come walk into the station and be like, "This is what is going on in my community. I really need to talk about it with someone." Someone will say, "Yeah, come in. Let's go. Come on air. I'll ask you about it." In today's world, how many media outlets can you walk into and say that to? Do you know what I mean? Like, and if you live in this town with a community radio station and you can't do that, it's not a community radio station. And I think a lot of, like I can say, like in the context of our city, there are stations like that that are really hard to get into, that are really hard to get shows on, that if you get shows on them, you have to play their music. You don't have choice. Um, you have to talk like them, you know, all these things. And that's, it doesn't feel what I understand community radio to be. It has to be accessible and to the community. And so, yeah, it's that's that's the whole point is that it's, you can walk in there and say, I've got something to say. And I just think that's that doesn't exist. And I know people have Twitter accounts and stuff like that, but radio is different. You don't know who's listening at all. You never know who's listening. I think most people think no one's listening. That's what always shocks me is when I meet someone that listens and I'm like, why? How has the, the pandemic situation affected, like what you guys are doing? Like I said, I'm a pandemic president, which sucked. I had a really good coup and um, when I became president and I laid the groundwork and then like three months later the pandemic happened and it was like I had to decide whether we locked down the station or not. 
Um, and so we did. And then three months later, we had a funding cut and lost all our government funding for the first time in ever since that has ever existed, 20-something years. And um, we had like six months to stay open. And so not only was it just like this incredible challenge, it was under like these incredibly challenging circumstances. And I thank my mum, like, and everyone, like my mum, um, other like Skid Row elders who have even passed, like Tiger Bales, like my stepdad, Jabai, like I called on so much ancestral power to get through that. Um, and the communities, what did it? I stood in front of them, like half of them were on Zoom and half the people were able to be in the room. It's like 80 people all together and say, like, this is what's happened. Do you want to fight it and stay open or do you want to close the station in six months? Close, like, was it on the line of, like, close, close? Like forever close, yes. It would have been the right time, like we're coming up to like renewing our licence, like it could have, we could have very quietly said it's been 40 great years, great work has been done um, and that's it. And I was very ready to be like I thought, maybe this is my birthright, that little kid that resented this place the whole time, maybe I'm going to close the doors. But it's not up to me. That's the beauty of it. I had all these other people being going, yeah, no, we're going to fight. We're going to raise the money. How much do we need? What's the angle? Let's do it. It wasn't my choice. And that's really freeing. Um, and we did it. We raised, like, over $100,000 to stay open for another year. We, you know, I really went hard on the government funders, hard, hard. And, you know, they probably despise me now, but the next year we got a record, like, amount of funding. And that was it. It was tough. It was really tough. And we did all that remotely. And we suffered. Like, all our energy that would have been put into sustaining our communities through a pandemic had to be put into keeping the doors open and staying on air. You know that the meeting that you guys had when you were telling people what the story was, like who was at that meeting? All broadcasters, all staff, you know, trainers, like anyone that was involved in the station at that point in time. Um, like would have been a big shock to them to hear what you were saying? Um, most people, like I obviously that wasn't the first time I told people. As soon as I knew that there was no money coming, I told everyone. Um, I spent a lot of time on the phone to the funding body, talking to people that I would never want to talk to um, and trying to get them to understand what they'd done and that if they didn't work with me to make it better, that it was going to be bad for them. Um, and then I told everyone. Like, and by that stage, everyone knew we had no money. But what I laid out was why it had happened 
and why it wasn't a reflection of the quality of our work, that this was a terrible confluence of politics and pandemic. Because basically what happened was the funders decided to move a bunch of money into a, you know, a pandemic fund, which means and and give that money to stations that would never have otherwise applied for government funding. But they took it away from, like, a station of marginalised people. They took that money away from people of colour and it's just like, so I had to make clear to them that this wasn't a reflection of, like, how valid Skid Row is, really in a pandemic and a civil rights movement because by that stage, you know, it was Black Lives Matter everywhere. You can turn around and say that Skid Row isn't relevant given our history. Really? No, we're valid. But do we have what it takes to do the work of saving us? And, and we're not the first people to ever save Skid Row. It's happened before, right? There's been critical points for some reason. Something broke, the transmitter's down, whatever. But or there's infighting or a bad board. But I had to ask this group of people if they were ready to do it now, and they were. So I laid it out with them. I just wasn't like, there's no money, what are we going to do? I was like, this is what happened. This is why it doesn't make sense for it to happen now, but what do you want to do? Because it would require their labour. When you said, like, that you were asking the question, like, do we have what it takes to like fight it like what did it take like what were you referring to there or what did people respond we had to we had to like um raise money do you know what I mean like I know we're all poor people but like do you know how to ask for money I don't know how to ask for money because I'm poor I don't have that very deaf financial literacy of just being able to like hustle money like I'm getting better at it, definitely, but, like, to have to fucking, sorry, excuse me, to have to sit (laughs) and beg people for money. And we'd done a fundraiser. We'd done one online fundraiser before that was, like, we raised $40,000. And that was, we were so excited. We did it. And I was saying the next year, okay, we have to triple that. Are you ready? Like, it wasn't just going to be as hard as what we did before. It was going to be three times harder because we had to just get really creative. We had to push it constantly. We had to push it to our communities. Like people went out and collected cash around their communities because that's how their communities work. They're not going to put money into it. They don't see a GoFundMe or whatever. You need to actually go and be like, you listen to my show, will you give me $20? And people will bring money back to the station. And that's how honest people are and invested people are. They bought back every dollar. They could have pocketed that money and run, but they didn't. Like I said, it pushed us. I think we were all, like, we, we, the actual work suffered in having to hustle that hard um, for money, but we did it. I think we're all a bit traumatised by it too, but that was kind of how the pandemic really hit us hard. And then it's come back again and it's again this thing of can you spend hours at home producing a radio show and, 
each time we lock down, we find other ways to get people to, like a couple of people this time were broadcasting live from home because our operations coordinator found a way to do that using a couple of online apps. Um, but I also just sent in music because I couldn't do it this time. Last year I recorded so many good lockdown shows, but this year I was just like, here's a bunch of new music. And I recorded just like random, you're listening to that can be used every week. At one point, my dad was doing his Elvis show where he was recording the audio like in his phone. And before he did it, he would have to like introduce a song. But before he started recording, he would figure out like how long the song was so that he could leave the right amount of space for the song to go in. So he would just be like silent for like two minutes, 31 seconds for a song. And then like, start talking again after that (laughs) that is so smart that is such a smart way of doing it oh it's that's a really good way of doing a show on your own I've got a co-host so it's a little bit harder um but that's smart and then does he slot the songs in himself or does someone else do that for him? But he wasn't able to go to the station at the time. So okay. he would send it in and then they would like put the songs in and put it out. That's a good pandemic ingenuity. Yes, that's a lot of, that's a lot of what our ops coordinator was doing. He was just like up making programs with everyone's files. Um again, which is like takes away from work. So it's fundamentally changed how we do radio. It also has limited our capability to go out into the community and do live broadcasting community because there's not events or anything like that now um, or at the moment. So it's weird. It's very weird and sad. But radio is still eternal and valuable. So, Do you guys broadcast on like a website as well? No, you can listen to the streaming. It's radioskidrow.org.au, maybe. Just Google Radio Skid Row and there's streaming on the website. Um, and then you can get it. Oh, I don't know how it works internationally. I've never thought about that. But there are a couple, like, radio listening apps um, that you can get that you can listen through that. My show's Sunday morning, 10 a.m. to 12 midday. Um, so 10 a.m., which is going to be, I'll do the math there now for people on this side of the world. If you're in Ireland, it's going to be like 11 o'clock at night. Well, for you guys, it's like listening to the future. So it's yeah, that's like true, actually. time travel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. You get to hear what's going on in the future. You get some warning about what's coming. So what's it like now? Like, are you guys feel like you're coming in the bit of light over there at the minute? Or are you still? Yes. We are coming out of four months lockdown, which makes everyone crazy, like so crazy. Um, I think, I don't know if we feel like this year is a wash. It's nearly December, but we're having our annual general meeting on Saturday. This is actually like the last three days of my presidency, possibly. There could be a coup on Saturday. Do you have to like go for election? Yeah, so what happens is we all meet, everyone meets, you renew your membership to the station 
and people get nominated for the board, the presidency, you get up, you make your case for why it should be you and people vote. So is there someone against you? I don't know. I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. Like I, I, you know, I was really encouraging of people back in June when we had our strategic, we had a strategic planning meeting, which was our first like kind of big in-person meeting since COVID existed. And, um, you know, that's when it was funny you mentioned the cafe because everyone really wanted a new coffee, a coffee machine. That's what they want. Um, to spend some of the money that we raised on last year. They really want a coffee machine. Um, but I encouraged them then to start plotting and planning on me. Like what you, what I did was I very slowly, I, I left staff and then I just kind of floated around the station. I did some fill-ins on shows and I would talk to people, you know, I think, you know, I'm going to go on the board. Like when you get your nomination form, nominate me, da-da-da-da-da. And actually my mum was thinking of coming back and being president. And then the forms started coming in and all these people, all these especially young people, radicalised them early, had just put my name down. And so I kind of cooed her because I think she thought she was a shoe-in. Your mum? Yeah, of course. Like she, <laughs> she thought she was a shoe-in. But this year I don't know who's going to coo me. I really hope someone does. Otherwise... Um, it's going to get wild. Do you think like your mom could go back with a little counterattack? She's not coming. She's away. I found out this week she's going to be away, although that could be the counterattack. Either way, I've been president for two years in a pandemic and I'm going to stay on the board and obviously stay doing half the stuff I do already. But it's super important to learn every job when you're in a community org, like it's like a restaurant, you start with washing dishes, eventually you might be the manager. And I've done every job now. And I've learned like a lot about what it means to be a leader. Um, And it's important for someone else to take that opportunity as well. Like how many places in the world would a young black woman be able to do a coup and lead a station for two years like not many places and so within the context of Skid Row other marginalized people can step up and learn these lessons and then you know obviously I take those leadership lessons into my creative practice into all these other things but I really think it's important for other people to get a chance to learn and um you know, I kind of wanted me to be the last person in my family to be president of Skid Row. That's it. My it's kids like aren't going like to have to. Planting the seeds of dissent against your reign so that someone else can kind of come and take over and put their stamp on it. Yeah. That's the whole point. And I'll be there. I always say, like, I'm happy to stay on the board and lead, help someone lead and answer questions and share knowledge and all that stuff. But I also realised you don't have to be a leader to do everything you want to do. Some things, especially within a station context, work better as a just kind of a low-key infiltration. Like some work is better done without the title of a leader. You can do some 
manoeuvring that you can't do as a president. President, you've got to be so diplomatic. You've got to be so diplomatic. And eventually I think that becomes ineffectual, sort of like Barack Obama. It sounds like it really sounds like a, a very unique leadership trait to be in the president's role and, and encouraging someone else, other people to come and take over. Like that's like the best kind of leadership in, in many ways that you could be given rather than trying to like hog the, hog the podium or whatever. You're kind of like inviting other people to come up to the podium to take their turn. Because it's a community radio station, it's not sustainable f- through one person. If anything, that's what I did learn really from my mum. You know, I always saw her as doing so much, like you're doing everything, you're doing so much, just let it die, I used to say, as a like awful eight-year-old. But like that's not sustainable. If it's one person, it's not sustainable. It has to be collective. Knowledge has to be shared. Lessons have to be shared. And I've learned as president there's some things you only learn when you get to that level. Like there are stories that I've heard my whole life and then I became president and it's like I heard the real end to the story. There's like another epilogue that no one ever told me. But it's like you had to get up to that level of commitment to be able to get that knowledge. And so, yeah, as a community radio station, it's not sustainable through one person. Everyone has to get the chance to learn, contribute, participate. Yeah, really. That's what I I really believe. It's sort of like what I said. I stood in front of those people who said, do you want to do it or do you want to shut it? And then it wasn't, in the end, it wasn't my decision. I just presented options as president. Mm. And whenever I was just driving back from the gym earlier and it was like four or five o'clock in the evening and I was just kind of stuck in traffic. I was just thinking about the podcast because I've just been starting to get the space to think about it a little bit in the last couple of weeks. And like really the podcast has really just been hanging on by like one thread, just one, just one teensy little thread. The podcast has been hanging on for the last few months because I just felt like under it's like a lot of pressure, I guess, like time and the pressure I was putting on myself to get the episodes recorded and produced and get them out there and keep in touch with people who were following the podcast and stuff. But like doing this chat is as like as like the first conversation of the podcast that I've had back is just like reaffirms like the reason why I do the podcast. Like when you, like we're on the other side of the world from each other now, just talking about this, like and being such a sweet chat. It was nice that you asked. And and like I said, I don't get asked questions or talk about myself a lot. So I don't know how well I did. But I always remember that when I posted the Networks of Solidarity thing on Instagram, someone DM'd me and said, you're a handsome genius. And so Must I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is maybe something I want to be interested in. Too, interested in. And the more I've um, seen the stuff at the gym and obviously hearing you um, on the podcast, but hearing you talk about your experience of radio, I'm glad we got to reconnect um, again after that chat and just talk a little bit about what it means to sustain community 
and how we learnt it in a really weird way through our parents playing songs on the radio. Like there's sometimes where I can feel really alone, like politically and um, artistically and culturally because I'm just like looking around at the world and it's nuts. Um, or I'm not seeing the politics I want to see mirrored in my community um, or outside it. And to know, you know, it's very skid row to find those connections globally. You know, it is very skid row to feel isolated in our political stance, but then to find connections globally. And I think, like, everyone has their own struggle, but it does go back to this global project of white supremacy and capitalism, colonialism, and it has to be globally ended, you know? Totally. And, and I think yeah. you get that as well. I can see. We didn't even get into Palestine because I'm like, how are you on your Palestine team? Like, at least I'm an Arab, but that's another weird thing I grew up with. It wasn't cool to be pro-Palestine when I was young. But anyway, thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad you're back at it. Have a nice day. You too. And bye to Nancy. <laughs> She's next to you. Wherever she is. <laughs> Take it for a walk. <laughs>